Welcome to Strung Out, the podcast that looks at life through the lens of an artist. Your host is the artist, writer, and musician, Martin Lawrence McCormack. Now here's Marty. Welcome. So glad to have you with us on another podcast of Strung Out. I just got back from traveling to Colorado to play some shows with Switchback, and it was very weird after three years to get back in the saddle and head out to a faraway town and do what I used to do for the last 30-odd years of my life, go and play a venue play a bunch of private parties, that sort of thing. But one of the enjoyable parts of that is if you have a wanderlust, if you like to drive and travel, it's driving across the American prairie or what remains of it is something that's extremely enjoyable. It's also very educational in the sense that you can see And especially in this case, my having a three years absence from going out to Colorado and back, you can see just how people are changing the landscape. And what I mean by that was I was surprised to see uh, a lot more trees going across Kansas, a lot more cedars. Those trees were planted to combat erosion and act as a windbreak, and they've taken over some of the open areas. The other thing that I witnessed was driving into Colorado from Nebraska. That corridor now is becoming fairly populated. At this point, Denver has encroached out onto the eastern plains and is heading toward Nebraska. This is what is intended when they have these interstates, is the idea that it's a river of commerce. A lot of new cattle feed lots, that sort of thing. But as you get closer into Denver, it's now these big box factories, the kind of things that you see anywhere around the country or the world for that matter. It's just they're growing, they're pushing out. Land is cheaper. Ultimately, what it does is it changes any chance of preserving large chunks of land once it starts getting divided. And today, I want to pick up on a topic that is something that I really like to talk about, and that is the idea of taking vast areas or even small areas and rewilding them or turning them back into a state of pre-exploration. I'm trying to say it in such a way that it doesn't have any of the political overtones of European colonization or before the native humans were invaded, that sort of thing. We're going to look at a couple places where this is going on. And I talked about this a couple podcasts back with Sandeep, but I just thought I'd round up three great examples. And these are places that you can visit. You can actually go to and see with your own eyes the progress that's being made. Doubtless, there are smaller scale projects, probably not too far from where you live. If you come across them, 
please send them to me. I, I would love to know what's going on with them. And even better yet, if you're a person running one of these, I'd love to interview you. So the first one I want to talk about is the biggest one because it involves a country, and that is Scotland. And Scotland is starting to rewild a lot of its vast estates. These estates in the hands of rich, gentried families for hundreds and hundreds of years. These would be used for private getaways. Some people would live on the land. These would be uh, the tenant farmers. The land itself was denuded of trees. That happened a long time ago. And in a lot of examples of these estates, they were turned into big agricultural plantations with some of the outer moorland, the mountains, the peat bogs, and things like that, being held aside for deer hunting, or as uh, people in the UK like to call it, deer stalking. The streams themselves would have trout and salmon. However, a lot of these streams would be straightened out. The reason being is, again, for transportation, and it, to some degree, the human mindset. The result of that, of course, would be loss of habitat for it, the trout and the salmon. These creatures need bends and streams. They need gravel beds. They need sediment. They need all that sort of thing to give them the perfect habitat for laying eggs and regenerating the species. So there is a website, and it's called www.rewild.scot. This is the first place I want to direct you to, because after you hear this, you can check it out for yourself. The Scottish Rewilding Alliance, okay? People from around the world are waking up to this idea. I just want to read what their mission is. The Scottish Rewilding Alliance is a collaboration between like-minded organizations who share a mission to enable rewilding at a scale new to Scotland. Our approach embraces working in partnership with landowners, communities, interest groups, and government to achieve a shared agenda that shapes the landscape. Our goal is a flourishing ecosystem supporting self-sustaining nature-based economies which secure a future for local communities. This is an extremely well-written mission statement. I'm going to read the mission statements of the other two projects because I think it's interesting. They, they all share a common bond that they don't want to just kick people off the land and put up a fence and good luck. The idea is to bring it back to a natural state that somehow people can harmonize with that natural state and benefit from it. They can benefit from it in so many ways, ecotourism, using the reclaimed, rewilded resources instead of perhaps a farming in the traditional matter. Now you can graze deer or you can use the, the increased salmon stocks and trout stocks for either fishing privately, organized trips, or collecting them. They're going to be sustainable because you have re wilded the resource to its proper place. 
It's a very exciting thing. Now, this is huge because Scotland's goal, their whole goal is to be the first nation of rewilding. They want to be the the rewilding capital of the world. It's an interesting idea. And here's some of their principles. They say that rewilding enables the wildlife to recover. And they say that gives the nature more space and a vast interconnected network of flourishing habitats, which will allow lost wildlife to return. This is a key part of this project, the reintroduction of certain species. The red squirrel is an example of uh, a species in Scotland that has really taken a pounding, really important to the whole ecosystem. It got compromised when people introduced the North American gray squirrel. And when that was introduced, the result was that the red squirrel population was crowded out by a much more aggressive, invasive species. Be interesting to see just how they're going to get rid of the gray squirrel. I don't know if they can, but they're going to probably try. Here's another thought of the Scottish Rewilding Alliance. Rewilding is thinking differently. That asks us all to recognize that we are one species among many bound together in an intricate web of life that doesn't recognize lines drawn on a map. That's a bigger world thinking kind of idea. This is wonderful thinking. A human society, I think, might have to have some sort of lines in, in the sense of fences, at least in Scotland. Depends on how big of a species you're going to bring back into the ecosystem. Scotland had wolves. Scotland had bears. Scotland had lynx. You're talking about some big species that have been eradicated, especially the predatory ones. What do you do? You can't just have them wandering into Edinburgh. So that's one of the challenges of these organizations. One thing they say is that rewilding secures our future. It's a no-brainer. Now that we are in this uh, race against carbon and methane and everything else causing climate change, we have to restore as much as possible to accommodate the fact that we have this increased industrial activity that needs to be transformed. And what a better way to do it than actually bringing the area back into what it was. Of course, they make the argument, it's good for business. It makes you healthier and a brighter future. So very exciting stuff with the Scottish Rewilding Alliance, I think. I encourage you to go to the website. They have one example that I want to talk about, and I'm probably going to butcher all the names, but there is the, the Rottle. And the Rottle is a river, I guess you could say it's in the Highlands. It's an 8,000-acre estate in the southeast corner of the Cairngorms National Park. So it's already in an area designated. Rottle blends the traditions of sheep farming, deer stalking, grouse shooting, and tourism, an event portfolio. So the guy that is running this place, D. Ward, he calls it renaturalizing. He wants to not so much bring it back 
to what it was before man stepped there, but bringing it back to a much more primitive state. This estate, the Rattle Burn, uh, feeds into the River South Esk, which flows through Glen Clova on its way to the Montrose Basin. I hope you all got that. Here's one of these examples. He's talking about the rattle was straightened in the 1840s, and although it retained relatively good conditions for salmon and trout, every time the the burn, the river flooded, young fish, eggs, and gravel were just washed away. So that's a simple idea of just allowing the river to meander. In 2012, they did just that. They took an 800-meter section of the river, and uh, they increased the length because it was straightened at 800 meters, the meandering of it went to over 1,200 meters and slowed the flow of the water. And uh, this really helped on so many levels. First of all, you're increasing the, uh, slowing down the river, you're increasing the floodplain. It's a, a huge benefit to the the fish, especially. Fish need to have cover and need to have, in some places, colder running water and some places, warmer water. They're very happy. Craig McIntyre says the rattle obviously looks much more interesting now with trees and wildflowers. But from a biological perspective, we're simply seeing more fish. The densities of salmon fry are five times what they were, and the complexity of the river now allows salmon, at different stages of their life, access to food and shelter. This is one of these things that uh, a simple act of just allowing nature to literally run its course, in this case, the river Rottle, you're bringing back a, a huge benefit. And every one of those salmon can be harvested one way or the other. A big change that Scotland has to do, and same for Ireland, is the return of forest. Some of the big challenges have to do with global warming. Growing zones, if you will, are are marching northward. Places that traditionally had certain kind of trees are no longer having those kind of trees or no trees at all. A good case in point, the Department of Forestry in the state of Minnesota are concerned that over time, Minnesota is going to look like Kansas because the pines, all the natural northern woodlands are marching north. It's funny to think that trees can get up and move, but they do, folks. It's just uh, we don't get to see how that repopulation changes in our brief lifespan. These people are able to predict what kind of trees they might need to actually bring into Minnesota that's going to adjust to a changing climate. This is all tricky work, isn't it? Again, very important to have the rewilding to combat climate change and give ourselves a second chance at having a magical world. Nobody really will say that, but that's really where we're at. We're all enthralled by wilderness and enthralled by that idea that we might be the first person there. That's what we want. We want to feel at times that we're in the Garden of Eden. In this case, with the rattle burn, again, I'm just going to quote from the site. They said it wasn't at all controversial because everyone saw the benefit in it. And beavers and the like are different, however, because people tend to view anything new as bad. Beavers haven't been around long enough in Scotland for people to see that in the right place they can do fantastic work. The natural river tenders stream changers and pond makers 
they're essential if you're going to have a, a wilderness area if they're indigenous to that area. In the case of uh, a lot of Europe, people don't realize that the beaver was all over Europe. And so bringing back the beaver is going to help this area quite a bit. And I'm just going to quote from here. More trees or more beavers, for that matter, means more insects and woody debris for invertebrates. And this means more fish. It's this win-win approach that benefits both nature and people that gives us a route that gives us a route forward. Again, very exciting stuff. You can sign up for their newsletter and find out all about it. Love the fact that they are saying, we're going to be that country. We're going to be that country where people can come and get lost in uh, a, a wilderness area. When we come back after the break, I'm going to introduce you to another big project that's taking place in the United States. You're listening to Strung Out. Hello, folks. The wait is over. Martin McCormick's captivating artwork can now be seen and purchased at the Keokuk Art Center in Keokuk, Iowa. This exhibition of Marty Fine Art runs through June 25th. Visit the Art Center all month long to see paintings, scratch art, drawings, including Martin McCormick's newest pieces, One-Eyed Wolf, 200 Proof, The Thunder Bison Jacket, and the freshly completed One-Eyed Owl. While you are at the Art Center, Sign up for Marty's newsletter to be entered in the July 4th drawing for Steel Eagle. Marty has been hard at work, so come celebrate his success at the closing reception, Saturday, June 25th, from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Keokuk Art Center. To save and share this information and see the artwork, visit Martin. I'd like to come back as a million roses, a million roses in the spring. In the gardens, you'll find. 
rugged road The love that was so fleeting Never laid me low The next big rewilding project that I want to introduce you to is one that I don't think I've talked about at all on this program, and I'm surprised that I haven't yet in over a hundred <laughs> podcasts. But this is something I'm extremely excited about because I love the West, and this is the American Prairie Reserve website www.americanprairie.org. Let's see if we can find their mission statement. If you go to the site, it's a very complex site, okay? So let's see what their mission statement is, and we can just read that. Sounds pretty familiar. Our mission is to create the largest nature reserve in the contiguous United States, a refuge for people and wildlife, preserved forever as part of America's heritage. So that's their mission right there. They're situated up in eastern Montana. And I have followed these guys now for a long time. And it's really cool what they're doing. One of the things they're doing is that they are also trying to create a sustainable preserve. And unlike national parks, these preserves that are rewilded will allow a certain amount of hunting that sort of thing to exist on it so it's not like it's we'll fence it and nobody can come in we take the initiative to understand and support the roles of others within and beyond our own functional teams in other words ranchers government and that outside of the american prairie reserve they're looking for cooperation finding good solutions as I said, this is a vast website. Bear with me because I'm going to just scoot around it to talk about some of this stuff. Really interesting read about how they put together the land. I'll just read a little bit to you and encourage you to go through and, and look. It would take you probably a good hour or so. The innovative model for building American Prairie calls for stitching together 3 million acres of existing public lands and using private lands purchased from willing Sellers. Unlike the creation of national parks through government action, American Prairie is connecting large swaths of fragmented public lands through the strategic purchase of private lands. Biologists have determined that a prairie would need to be about 5,000 square miles in size, or roughly 3.2 million acres, in order to be a fully functioning ecosystem 
complete with migration corridors and all native wildlife. This is huge. This is huge stuff. And I'm so excited about it because the American Prairie Reserve has been called the chance of creating America's Serengeti. I, I just love this idea. I also read somewhere where they're saying we would love to see this be like it looked in 1803 when Lewis and Clark explored it. Now, here's a nice little fact. Since 2004, American Prairie has completed 33 transactions buying private land to build a habitat base of 452,428 acres. All right, so the goal is 3.2 million. And they're at 452,428 acres, 452,428 acres. So 117,611 acres are private lands owned by the American Prairie. 334,817 acres are public lands, federal and state, leased by the preserve. Just so cool. The map, if you look at it, it follows the course of the Missouri River. And there's a lot of public land along the Missouri. There's also a lot of tribal land. The Fort Belknap uh, Indian Reservation, the Charles Russell National Wildlife Area. I remember years ago going to that with my brother-in-law, Antelope. I think we were looking or scoping Antelope, looking at this map. There's, in blue, just huge swaths of land, huge swaths of land that are uh, now part of the Prairie Reserve. It looks like it's the size of a small state out east. The keystone species here, of course, is the bison. And when you have bison on the plains, you also get the attraction of some of the predatory species. This is very controversial because the gray wolf, the timber wolf, coming back onto the prairie, whew, I don't know how that's going to go with ranchers, but we're going to have to learn how to live with all this stuff. Let me read what American Prairie says. American Prairie hopes to be a catalyst in the effort to bring many wildlife populations such as mule deer, white-tailed deer, bighorn sheep, elk, cougars, and grassland birds back to significantly larger populations than currently exist in the region. Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks manages all wildlife species in the region with input from the general public and from citizen advisory groups on which our staff also serve. Nothing about some of the bigger species, the big $64,000 question. Does American Prairie intend to reintroduce predators such as wolves or grizzly bears, which were historically present in the region? As a nonprofit organization, American Prairie does not have the authority to reintroduce species to the area, even if those species were historically present. So in other words, if it's going to happen, it's going to have to be an agreement between the government and people, citizens, tribes, that sort of thing. I think it's just a matter of time once you get past the part of how to take care of losses due to predation on domestic stock, then you'll probably see that grizzlies and wolves will be back on the prairie. People don't realize the grizzly bears were primarily a prairie species, as were wolves. 
as were elk. They're now up in the mountains because that's where we forced them. Let's look if we can find some other information. Their big thing, of course, is the bison being the animal that can help them restore the prairie. If you can think of each bison as not only a fertilizing machine, but also like a a rototiller because of their hooves. They're essential in, in getting the prairie to do what the prairie does best. The biggest resistance probably would be from ranchers. They're trying this idea, this model called Wild Sky, and it's a collaboration between American Prairie and ranchers that are living and operating in key wildlife corridors and within neighboring communities in central Montana. So wildlife-friendly ranching practices. What you're seeing happening over in Scotland, if the ranchers are going to have predators on the property, they're going to have to come up with ways in which the practices can be mutually beneficial. Okay, And as they say, nice wording here, the borders of the prairie are softened and become a, a buffer of tolerance and support for wildlife by partnering with these rancher neighbors. Will they be able to collaboratively exist, uh, coexist? So again, a lot of reading here. The tribes in the area easily are being helped and benefiting from this. It's just a connection with their indigenous uh, way of life. The idea of the, the land looking like the land that their ancestors inhabited and managed, I think that's the other thing we have to realize is these are managed lands. They were managed by Native Americans prior to European colonization. I'm not going to try to read the, the Indian names, but the Grovant, the Blackfeet, the Cinnabon, the, the Sioux, Lakota and the Dakota, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa Cree, and the Métis, the Métis being the French-Canadian Native American tribe, the only, only tribe that has European blood that is recognized as a tribe, distinct from European or Native American, the Métis. That's really cool that these tribes, they're all working together historically. That's a first. We are proud to collaborate with many tribes in Montana and beyond to contribute to the growing movement of returning bison to the land and to keep those herds healthy genetically through animal exchanges. So that's the other part of this, to get the bison back to their wild status. A lot of bison DNA was polluted by cattle strains. Some of it deliberate, some of it accidental, but those cattle strains slowly get eliminated and you get back to what the native North American bison and the various subspecies had. There's cross-pollution between plains bison and the woodland bison of Canada, which is a bigger, more aggressive kind of uh, bison. So all that stuff takes time, and obviously it, it has to have the right habitat in order for it to happen. So uh, a lot of stuff happening here. Can you visit this place? Absolutely. You can come to this place. You can camp on the land. Huts and campgrounds provide affordable options that serve as base camps for adventure on the prairie. 
These facilities are open to the public and recreation groups of all kinds, including hikers, anglers, mountain bikers, bird watchers, hunters, and paddlers. So, again, this is the idea of creating something that might turn into a, a national park of its own kind. Whether it becomes a national park, who knows? But an exciting change. I love this approach to rewilding that's going on not only in Montana, but in Scotland. When we come back after this break, I want to talk about the final project that really caught my attention. And I think you're going to like this because this is extremely clever. You are listening to Strung Out. This podcast wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the gifts of support we receive from listeners like you. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not send in your gift of love? Go to martinmccormack.com and click on the donate button.
part of this topic of rewilding. And this is a case where you are rewilding, but you're using a man-made piece of infrastructure to make it happen. This is the Bison Bridge Project. If you go to Bison Bridge, one word, B-I-S-O-N-B-R-I-D-G-E dot org, you can see for yourself their website. This just got the support for it by the Illinois State Assembly. Repurposing infrastructure is a trend in the United States. What is deemed old becomes new and in turn enhances quality of life, opens up investment opportunities, transforms communities. That's the big premise of this whole thing. The Bison Bridge is a concept like no other currently in the United States. It's a land bridge consisting of wildlife and recreational crossing connecting the Iowa and Illinois riverfronts on the Mississippi River. With the right support, we hope to turn it into a national park site for visitors to enjoy for generations. The vision of this is great. It's a young guy that thought, why tear down the bridge? This guy had this concept of take the existing lands on both sides of the river And instead of just having a museum, why not create it in such a way that a herd of bison could actually live and graze on the bridge itself? It's a fairly big bridge. I just drove over it a couple days ago. Let's look just a little bit about what they're talking about. Chad Pragraki, this is the guy, has waited for the opportunity to repurpose the I-80 bridge, Interstate 80, for locals and visitors to experience the beauty of the Mississippi River and the Quad Cities. The Quad Cities are four cities in the Mississippi that border Iowa and Illinois. And a fairly grown, developed area, not too far from here, is also where the legendary Buffalo Bill was born in Clinton, Iowa. The state of Illinois is uh, responsible for developing the the study, design, and construction of a new crossing over the Mississippi River at I-80 in the Quad Cities. So what they want to do is, while that new bridge is built, they want to keep this old pr- bridge. Phase 2 engineering will include plans for demolition of the existing bridge and plans for constructing the new one. The Bison Bridge Foundation hopes to change that narrative to include repurposing the existing bridge rather than demolishing it. And uh, the final phase of this, they want the Bison Bridge to become 
a new national park. Here's a nice little fact. 42,000 cars a day traveling over the Mississippi on I-80. The Bison Bridge will attract locals and visitors alike for the chance to experience all the river and region have to offer. Now, unlike Scotland, unlike uh, Montana, the Mississippi River area is fairly populated. It's farming, it's industrial. So this guy has a great vision in the sense that take this thing and turn it into a, a place where people can relax, congregate, study. The bison, these are wild bison that are going to be on the bridge. Approximately 100 acres of grazing land on either side of the river. And the westbound lane dedicated to an actual bison crossing. It's going to have prairie growing on it. The bison will be there. The eastbound lane will be the interpretive center. I would love to see parts of the state of Illinois, a, a private organization, take the idea of the bison bridge and try to create ways of getting people to and try to connect some of these areas in the upper state of Illinois, especially Midwin National Grasslands, Nechusa Grasslands, which is owned by the Nature Conservancy, and several other ones. Wouldn't it be cool if we could build some through land bridges and buying up certain farms, a vast prairie restoration project for northern Illinois? Think of the implications of that. According to this website, 38,804 signatures so far. So why don't you jump on and support these guys? And as they say, join the herd. So that's it for this show. I hope you go to these three different websites. I barely scratched the surface in introducing you to them. I think you're going to find that equally fascinating and the whole idea of using nature, wild nature, to benefit our modern society on so many different levels, not only with battling climate change, but also reinvigorating economies and introducing that crucial element of tourism, but also wild harvesting. This is something that it's uh, counterintuitive to us as being a farming type of people, but this is getting in touch with that natural part of all humanity. I look forward to talking to you next week. Remember, be good, do good, and keep the faith. You've been listening to Strong Out. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. For more information about this show or a transcript, visit martinmccormack.com. While there, sign up for our newsletter. See you next time on Strung Out. It's all so wrong, it's pain we feel, makes no sense at all. A swan song wasn't part of the deal, was no good call. Giving out joys, giving out stats.